Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the Advocacy and Pharmacy podcast. This podcast, hosted by ASHP's Government Relations Division, provides an update on what ASHP is currently involved in with on the Hill, at the state level, upcoming advocacy opportunities, PAC fundraisers, and strategies to increase member involvement with their representatives. My name is Bailey Larson, Strategic Initiatives Associate at ASHP, and I will be your host for today's ASHP Advocacy and Pharmacy podcast. With me today is Kyle Robb. Kyle is ASHP State Policy and Advocacy Associate. Thank you for joining us today, Kyle. Be here, Bailey. So let's get started talking about today's topic, recapping notable 2021 state pharmacist provider laws. A few of our recent podcasts have focused on efforts to advance pharmacist recognition through advocacy and ASHP's effort to build support for the Pharmacy and Medically Underserved Areas Enhancement Act in the United States Congress. But let's back up for a second and talk about pharmacist provider status as a concept. What exactly is provider status as it pertains to pharmacists, and why do we use that terminology? Yeah, that's a great question. So the terminology around pharmacist provider status really arises out of the ongoing push to add pharmacists to the list of providers in Medicare Part B uh, that is governed by Section 1842 of the Social Security Act. Uh, So a little bit of a history lesson. Back in the 1960s, when Medicare was first passed, Medicare Part B initially mostly just covered physician services. So Medicare would cover any service that was within a physician scope of practice, so long as that service was either medically necessary for the patient uh, or a prescribed pre-covered preventative benefit. There were a few isolated exceptions where specific nurse specialist or physical therapist or other non-physician practitioners might have been reimbursed for individual services, but physicians were the originally the only practitioners that received reimbursement for their entire scope of practice. Over the years, the exceptions for other non-physician providers began to grow and encompass several other provider types. And then in 1997, there was a law called the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, which amended the Medicare program to remove all restrictions on certain non-physician practitioners and expand payment for those practitioners to also be anything that is within their scope of practice, so long as it's medically necessary, just like physicians. The Balanced Budget Act of 1997 specifically listed uh, a list of practitioners in Section 1842 that would be reimbursed for any of these services within their scope of practice. So really, since 1997, we've been pushing to add pharmacists to that list of non-physician practitioners, uh, which notably does include physician assistants and advanced practice nurses, uh, and gaining recognition for reimbursement for anything uh, that is within a pharmacist's scope of practice. But we also have to remember that for Medicare provider status, that would make pharmacists eligible for services that are within their scope of practice. So if a pharmacist had a narrow scope of practice, that would narrow what they can be paid for. So when we say pharmacy provider status in the global sense, we're really not talking just about a bureaucratic designation of pharmacists as providers, but more so it's become shorthand for the idea of ensuring that patients have full access to clinical service capabilities of pharmacists and ensuring pharmacists are appropriately reimbursed for providing those services. Provider status can really be broken down into two core components or core domains. One would be scope of practice, and that is the ability for pharmacists to deliver services to the height of their training, education, and skill set, and reimbursement, and that is the ability for pharmacists to be compensated for the services they are delivering. Thanks so much for providing that history, Kyle. I think there's so much to uncover in that term of provider status, 
and you providing the history of the Social Security Act and provider status and core domains are really helpful. I know this has been a, a key priority for ASHP and your department. So what are the respective roles of state and federal laws in achieving pharmacist provider status? Yeah, so state and federal laws are both extremely important in, in obtaining true pharmacist provider status, uh, and both need to be addressed. Um, so when we talk about those two core domains, you know, first we, we talk about scope of practice. Scope of practice is governed by the states. Uh, so if pharmacists are licensed by state-level entities, state boards of pharmacies, right, they're licensed by individual states, and individual states, through their State Pharmacy Practice Act, uh, define, you know, what the process for licensing a pharmacist is and then what a pharmacist is and is not permitted to do uh, once they are in practice. So states have more or less complete control over scope of practice. One notable exception recently has been the PrEP Act waiver guidance that has temporarily expanded pharmacist ability to independently order and administer immunizations to certain patients. And this is an example of the federal government exercising uh, authority to ex temporarily expand scope of practice to respond to uh, public health emergencies and disaster preparedness measures. Federal government actions can't really truly define permanent scope of practice for health professionals, uh, but rather they can just temporarily expand scope of practice uh, to respond to specific public health emergencies and public health needs. But again, you know, the, the PrEP Act waiver guidance is, is a temporary exception to the scope of practice rule. And really the rule for scope of practice uh, is that scope of practice is defined at the state level. Uh, so scope of practice is state. When it comes to reimbursement, whether reimbursement is governed by state or federal law is going to depend on the specific payer and the specific program. Uh, now, all health insurance plans are subject to federal laws, but some health insurance plans are regulated primarily by the state, while others are regulated exclusively by the federal government. Uh, one example of exclusively being regulated by the federal government is Medicare. So uh, individual states could not pass a law to add pharmacists to the Social Security Act like we were just talking about before. That can only be done through Congress. And only Congress is able to establish reimbursement policy within the Medicare program. So Medicare is completely federal. Commercial insurance plans can be regulated by states or by the federal government, depending on the plan. States have the ability to regulate fully insured and small group uh, insurance plans. Uh, so these are individual market plans, these are small employer plans, uh, or other forms of fully insured insurance. Large self-insured plans uh, that are typically associated with large employers uh, are actually preempted from state regulations and are regulated at the federal level. So commercial plans uh, could either be state or federal depending on the plan. Finally, the other major category uh, of plans that we typically talk about is Medicaid plans. So Medicaid is a partnership between the states and the federal government where the federal government establishes the terms of the program. However, states have a great deal of flexibility in establishing what is covered and what is not covered. Uh, and federal law actually already permits states to cover any service that is within a pharmacist's scope of practice as an optional benefit. That means states are able to decide what pharmacist services they want to cover or not to cover. And for this reason, we can primarily think of Medicaid reimbursement policy as primarily being driven at the state level. So just to recap, for Medicare, that is entirely federal. Only Congress can change reimbursement for the Medicare program. Commercial insurance plans are a mix of state and federal law, but states do have a, a good amount of leeway to influence commercial reimbursement. And Medicaid reimbursement is mostly defined at the state level. That makes much more sense to me now, so thank you for clarifying that. And I can definitely see why this is so 
important to our pharmacy members. So we'll come back to reimbursement in a few minutes, but let's start with scope of practice. What are some common trends in state efforts to expand scope of practice? And I know that you've made some good wins in this area. Yeah, so you know, we talked a little bit about uh, pharmacist immunization authority before, and that has been so extremely important in terms of specifically responding to the ongoing COVID-19 public health emergency and in getting people vaccinated against COVID-19, but also you know, making sure they keep up with regular vaccinations. So um, as expected, we're seeing a lot of moves in states to expand pharmacist immunization authority. Uh, the PREP Act waiver guidance that has expanded pharmacist immunization authority will expire at the end of the public health emergency. So a lot of the current scope of practice uh, that pharmacists are, are able to enjoy for, for ordering and administering vaccinations might go away unless states are able to pass laws to expand their own state laws uh, to be uh, equal to or more permissive than the PREP Act. Uh, so in total, we've seen eight states so far in 2021 that have passed laws to expand pharmacist immunization authority. Of those eight states, three of those states, Arkansas, North Dakota, and Oklahoma, have expanded to be as permissive or more permissive than PREP Act waiver guidance. Specifically, Arkansas House Bill 1134 uh, authorized pharmacists in Arkansas to independently order and administer any FDA-authorized immunization to patients age three and older. North Dakota, Senate Bill 2221, also authorized pharmacists to administer immunizations, uh, order and administer immunizations to any patients aged three and older. And the gold medal for this cycle so far has been Oklahoma. Uh, Oklahoma passed a bill, Senate Bill 398, which authorized qualified pharmacists to independently order and administer any FDA immunization to patients of any age with no further restrictions. And what are states doing to expand pharmacist collaborative practice authority? Yeah, much like immunization, collaborative practice authority is, is an important component to, to pharmacist practice. Because again, you know, when we have these laws like the Medicare law, and like a lot of these insurance reimbursement laws that we're going to talk about, they tie reimbursement for pharmacist services to pharmacist scope of practice. And that includes uh, the pharmacist ability to perform services that are pursuant to collaborative practice agreements. And the pharmacist ability to engage in collaborative practice is really going to be heavily dependent on the state laws and what is and is not allowed. Think, you know, are pharmacists able to enter into collaborative practice agreements with just physicians or all providers? Uh, do they have to have a separate agreement for every patient, for every prescriber, or can they have large agreements that have multiple prescribers, multiple pharmacists, and multiple patients in the same collaborative practice agreement? Are there requirements around the uh, collaborating physician having to refer the patients for care or the patients having to be seen uh, or have a pre-established relationship with the physician? All of these things are things that need to be constantly sort of readdressed. You know, at, at the, the largest level, collaborative practice is just the practice of pharmacy whereby one or more pharmacists jointly agree on a voluntary basis to work in conjunction with one or more prescribing practitioners to provide patient care services uh, under a protocol to achieve optimal medication use and desired patient outcomes. The details uh, of how that exactly is carried out is left to the states to operationalize that. But we do on a broad level, uh, you know, encourage states to be constantly looking at their collaborative practice laws and seeing how can they be changed and how can we leverage existing technology uh, and how can we leverage the training of our professionals to really maximize the ability of collaborative practice models to work in practice. So, 
This is something that states are constantly going to have to readdress when looking at their Pharmacy Practice Act. Uh, but in 2021, we can say uh, there have been at least four states that have taken measures to expand and broaden collaborative practice in the states. Specifically, Nevada Senate Bill 229 uh, loosens requirements for prescriber-patient relationships. Uh, it loosens geographic restrictions on where pharmacist providers and patients can provide care. Uh, and it removes a prohibition on pharmacists providing controlled substances pursuant to collaborative practice agreements. Uh, another notable state would be Mississippi. Mississippi uh, passed a law that for the first time will permit uh, pharmacists that are practicing in institutional settings, so like in inpatient settings or in outpatient health systems, to enter into non-patient specific prescribing protocols. Uh, so they can have a relationship with a supervising prescriber uh, and they can see patients, they can order new therapies pursuant to a guideline-based protocol uh, and not a patient-specific care plan. Mississippi also expanded collaborative practice to allow pharmacists practicing in any setting to have patient-specific protocols with any prescriber. Connecticut also broadened uh, collaborative practice through an update to the Pharmacy Practice Act this year that allows for guideline-directed protocol agreements uh, instead of patient-specific care plans, which were previously required. Uh, and Connecticut also loosened the requirement that pharmacists have to report back to prescribers uh, through a uh, formal and official report at least once every 30 days. Uh, they can do that through just chart notes and documentation now rather than formally reporting back. Finally, Indiana did also pass an update to the Pharmacy Practice Act this year, and they removed the previous requirement that pharmacists and prescribers have a shared record-keeping system in order to engage in collaborative practice. That is no longer a requirement for collaborative practice in Indiana. So those are just a few examples of how we've broadened collaborative practice authority. Thanks, Kyle. So in addition to collaborative practice, we are also seeing states working to expand prescribing authority. Can you share some ways that your team is working with states to do this? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, states uh, in the recent years, we've seen a very large increase in the number of states that allow pharmacists to uh, perform prescribing functions. And that can be either dependent prescribing or independent prescribing. So forms of dependent prescribing include collaborative practice. Uh, and really dependent prescribing is any sort of prescribing where a pharmacist prescribing authority is derived from the authority delegated to them by a collaborative prescriber or a public health official. Uh, so that could be through an executed specific collaborative practice agreement uh, for one practitioner and one pharmacist. Uh, that could also be through a statewide standing order, right? So a, a public health official, the uh, director of a state's Department of Public Health could write a statewide standing order for naloxone, for example, uh, whereas it's, it's basically just a prescription that is already filled out and already signed by the public health official, and the pharmacist just has to fill in more or less the patient's name in order to be able to dispense the product. This is a form of dependent prescribing because it is through the authority of the public health official. Uh, in fact, the name on the prescription is often that of the public health official, but it's not necessarily collaborative practice because the public health official doesn't have to have a relationship, uh, an individual relationship with the pharmacist or the patients in order to allow the, uh, the statewide standing order to go through and to, uh, to allow that authority. Other forms of dependent prescribing would be a prescriber protocol. Um, so again, this could be a, this overlaps with collaborative practice, uh, but this could be where a prescriber and a pharmacist, uh, if allowed by state law, have a set of guidelines and protocols where if a patient comes in, uh, the pharmacist can screen that patient for a, a specific condition uh, and may be able to prescribe. 
based on that protocol relationship with the prescriber. But through this protocol, the prescriber doesn't necessarily have to have a pre-established relationship with the patient. And based on uh, how the assessment goes and the outcome of the assessment, the patient may not have to ever follow up with the, the physician too as well or the prescriber as well. Uh, so, so those are some forms of dependent prescribing. Dependent prescribing is contrasted with independent prescribing, which is a pharmacist's ability to issue a valid prescription for a drug or a device that is signed under the pharmacist's own name and is in no way directly tied to the prescribing authority delegated by a collaborating, collaborating prescriber uh, or by a public health official. Uh, so independent prescribing can include pure unrestricted prescribing authority where we simply say in state law that pharmacists can prescribe XYZ drug, period, with no further conditions, or it can be through a statewide protocol model. And that is where a board of pharmacy or a department of health or some other arm of state government uh, can issue a protocol whereby pharmacists can independently go through the, the protocol uh, and possibly prescribe patients' drugs uh, based on the protocol. Uh, so a protocol, again, is a form of independent prescribing uh, because while the pharmacist might have to meet certain conditions uh, as put forth by the Board of Pharmacy to be able to prescribe under the protocol, uh, once those protocols have been put out, they are not actually dependent on any other specific prescriber, only upon the, the authority of the board. Uh, and the, the concepts of uh, independent prescribing and dependent prescribing can apply to prescription drugs, uh, they can apply to OTC drugs, they can apply to vaccines, or they can apply to tests. So what are states doing to expand pharmacist prescribing authority? So currently 23 states allow pharmacists to independently prescribe drugs. Uh, and by that we mean it is in the Pharmacy Practice Act that prescribing drugs is one of your pharmacist functions as defined by that state's Pharmacy Practice Act. In some of these states, the only thing that pharmacists can prescribe is naloxone. Other states, there is a rather wide range of things that pharmacists can completely uh, independently prescribe, uh, which I'll, I'll get into in more detail in a moment. But, you know, we've really seen a, a big increase in a number of states that allow independent prescribing in any form. It has really uh, greatly increased over the last 10 years or so, and I think we've added five or six states this year, but we're, we're really reaching the point that nearly half of states allow pharmacists to independently prescribe, and this is a big change from 10 years ago. We're really seeing increases in all forms of prescribing and across dependent and independent. Um, as we were saying before, states are expanding collaborative practice agreements, expanding statewide protocols, and also expanding true unrestricted pharmacist prescribing too as well. And, and this is really a result on one hand aligning what pharmacists are permitted to do with what we know pharmacists are educated and trained to do. Uh, another component of it is we are addressing public health needs by leveraging pharmacist status as one of the most publicly available and trusted healthcare professionals and using that to increase patients' access to healthcare services uh, and reduce patients' needs to visit emergency rooms, urgent care, or have unnecessary office visits for minor conditions uh, that could be treated by a pharmacist. So specifically some areas around pharmacist prescribing that we're seeing the most action on are pharmacist prescribing of hormonal contraceptives, uh, pharmacist prescribing drugs for HIV prevention, pharmacist prescribing tobacco cessation drugs, uh, and naloxone, uh, among a few other things. Specifically in terms of hormonal contraceptives, uh, as of July 2021, there are now 21 states plus Washington, D.C. that have passed laws that permit pharmacists to order and dispense hormonal contraceptives uh, without any prior prescription from a different practitioner. Uh, so 
2021, we added to the list uh, Arkansas, Delaware, Illinois, Nevada, and Utah. Additionally, Arizona passed a law that permits but does not require public health officials to issue a statewide standing order for hormonal contraceptives. And, and really across these 21 states plus DC, we see a number of different prescribing models. Uh, some states have true unrestricted pharmacist prescribing of hormonal contraceptives. So the law simply states pharmacists are permitted to prescribe hormonal contraceptives, period. A lot of other states uh, have adopted statewide protocols. So they pass a law saying that the Board of Pharmacy must issue a statewide protocol that allows pharmacists to assess patients for the need for hormonal contraceptives. Uh, and if, if they are so indicated to prescribe hormonal contraceptives. Uh, a few states have uh, statewide standing orders uh, for, for contraceptives. So again, it would be a sort of protocol that's developed by the state, but the, the end of the assessment, at the end of the assessment, the pharmacist would prescribe a hormonal contraceptive that may be issued the name of a state public health official. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it still means the patients are able to come into pharmacies, receive pharmacists, and pharmacists are able to get them oral contraceptives without having to involve, directly involve any other practitioners. And there are additionally a few states that don't allow full independent pharmacist prescribing of hormonal contraceptives, but have very permissive dependent prescribing laws uh, that will allow pharmacists to enter into non-patient specific agreements with prescribers uh, that they have trusted relationships with, which will again uh, allow those pharmacists to prescribe on behalf of the other providers on a non-patient specific basis. Thanks, Kyle. Such great work in these states. What are states doing in terms of allowing pharmacists to prescribe drugs to prevent HIV? Yeah, so this is another area where we're seeing a, a lot of gains recently. So, you know, there are a total of nine states that have authorized pharmacists to independently prescribe and dispense uh, either pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, which is known as PrEP, or post-exposure prophylaxis, which is known as PEP. And this really began uh, uh, very recently, actually. So in 2019, California passed a bill uh, allowing pharmacists to prescribe both PEP and PrEP. And that was followed by Colorado passing a bill in 2020. Oregon and New Mexico also used previously established rulemaking to issue statewide protocols for pharmacists prescribing their PEP and PrEP in 2020 as well. So really for, for the first time on a large scale in 2020, uh, we saw pharmacists in those four states uh, California, Colorado, Oregon, and New Mexico, uh, gain the ability uh, to independently prescribe and dispense uh, drugs to prevent HIV. That was followed in 2021. We've actually added five additional states through new laws in 2021. Uh, so pharmacists in Maine, Missouri, Nevada, Utah, and Virginia uh, will soon be able to independently prescribe and dispense drugs to prevent HIV infection. So in in Missouri and New Mexico, pharmacists are able to prescribe post-exposure prophylaxis only, uh, but in the remaining seven states, pharmacists are permitted to prescribe both PrEP and PEP. And a lot of the laws that have been passed to allow pharmacists to prescribe HIV, PEP, and PrEP have also come through uh, bills that gave the State Board of Pharmacy or the executive branch of the government broader rulemaking authority to allow the Board of Pharmacy to issue statewide protocols for pharmacists prescribing uh, on an ongoing basis. Uh, without individual restrictions. Uh, you know, so a lot of these laws are specifically, you know, pharmacists may prescribe hormonal contraceptives or pharmacists may prescribe HIV, PEP, and PrEP. In order to uh, avoid having to pass a new law every single time we decide this in the public health interest to allow pharmacists to prescribe these things, uh, a lot of states are establishing committees or boards that simply say, 
this committee or board may issue protocols that allow pharmacists to prescribe things uh, that are in the interest of public health uh, with varying amounts of restrictions and mandates. Uh, and this is a model that, we're, again, we're really seeing pick up steam uh, just in the last few years. Uh, so specifically in terms of the rulemaking model, we saw this develop back in 2017. Uh, there was two states that really led the way on this, and this was Oregon and Idaho. Oregon passed a law that created a body called the Pharmacy Formulary Advisory Committee uh, in 2017. So the, the Pharmacy Formulary Advisory Committee is a separate committee composed of three pharmacists, two physicians, and two advanced practice nurses. And this committee uh, has the authority to issue protocols on an ongoing basis uh, to allow pharmacists to prescribe. Uh, so the, the law uh, enacting this was passed in 2017. The committee was first formed in 2018. And since the formation of this committee, uh, they've issued a number of protocols, including HIV, PEP and PrEP, contraceptives, and uh, protocols around continuation of therapy. Uh, so giving pharmacists the ability to independently prescribe uh, continuation prescriptions for patients who run out of refills, for example. Uh, so, so that was Oregon. Also in 2017, Idaho passed House Bill 191, which granted the Idaho Board of Pharmacy rulemaking authority to add drugs and devices uh, to an independent prescribing list, uh, and pharmacists were able to uh, prescribe via protocols uh, under four conditions. Uh, one, uh, situations where a new diagnosis is not required, uh, or uh, situations where the patient's conditions uh, is minor and self-limiting or conditions where there is a CLIO-waived test that will establish diagnosis, um, or four, situations in which it is an emergency situation and the patient's health or safety would be threatened without immediate access to the prescription drug. Um, so the Idaho Board of Pharmacy started uh, issuing a few protocols in 2018, but actually in 2019, Idaho passed an additional law that said the Board of Pharmacy doesn't have to make rules, and in fact, actually, pharmacists can just prescribe these drugs fully independently. So actually in Idaho, uh, pharmacists now have full unrestricted prescribing authority uh, for prevention of conditions that don't require a diagnosis, conditions that are minor and self-limiting uh, in situations of emergencies, or to treat uh, a condition that can be diagnosed via a CLIA-waived laboratory test. So in addition to Oregon and Idaho, we've seen some states sort of follow along that model uh, in the recent years, specifically in 2021. We actually had four states in 2021 so far that have passed legislation that have expanded the state's ability uh, to issue protocols on an ongoing basis. So in, in Arkansas, they passed House Bill 1246. Uh, that allows the uh, State Board of Pharmacy to develop statewide protocols uh, to allow pharmacists to treat influenza, streptococcus, and other conditions that can be diagnosed with CLIA wave lab test. North Dakota passed Senate Bill 2221 that permits the North Dakota Board of Pharmacy to establish prescriptive authority through statewide protocols uh, for any public health issues that are within the scope of practice of a pharmacist with no further restrictions. And as of June 2021, the North Dakota Board of Pharmacy uh, has stated they intend to develop protocols uh, allowing pharmacists to independently prescribe immunizations and independently prescribe drugs for tobacco cessation first, uh, but they do have the authority to develop more after that. Also, this year passed uh, was Utah House Bill 178, and that permits uh, the Utah State Department of Health uh, to make rules that permit pharmacists to prescribe 
uh, independently prescribe uh, drugs to address public health concerns. Uh, that includes HIV, PEP, and PrEP. That includes hormonal contraceptives, tobacco cessation, and naloxone. And uh, finally, Virginia. Uh, Virginia passed House Bill 2079, uh, which allows the state to develop protocols for naloxone, EpiPen, contraceptives, prenatal vitamins, OTCs, uh, and HIV, PEP, and PrEP, uh, among others. Also notable in 2021, uh, Colorado as well amended their Pharmacy Practice Act to permit pharmacist unrestricted prescribing authority uh, for conditions that do not require a new diagnosis, uh, are minor and self-limiting, uh, or have CLIA wave tested guide diagnosis. So uh, Colorado also adopted the Idaho model uh, of allowing pharmacists completely unrestricted prescribing authority uh, for certain minor and self-limiting conditions. Let's talk a little more about provider status and reimbursement. Sometimes progress made on the scope of practice front stalls because insurers aren't willing to pay pharmacists for providing certain services. Does a state or Congress passing a law that says, quote, pharmacists are healthcare providers, end quote, means pharmacists will be paid for services? That's a great question. So, so the answer is not necessarily. Simply designating pharmacists as eligible to be healthcare providers or eligible for reimbursement doesn't always necessarily mean that insurers are required to or that insurers will choose to reimburse pharmacists for those services. You know, I really like to explain the conundrum around uh, pharmacist reimbursement as there are really five levels of pharmacist recognition and reimbursement in insurance plans, right? So level one, the basic, the, the, the least desirable level would be uh, a situation in which pharmacists are explicitly ineligible to be reimbursed um, or uh, the law is written in a way in which it's ambiguous or unclear whether or not pharmacists can be reimbursed for services, um, you know, which then can be a barrier to uptake because no one wants to you know, take the step forward in terms of reimbursing pharmacists and they're absolutely sure that it's sort of legal in the up and up to do that for their services. You know, we talk so much about the Medicare program because right now pharmacists are at level one in the Medicare program. Pharmacists may not be reimbursed for a lot of these services that they provide independently uh, until the Social Security Act is amendment and they are added to the list of Medicare providers. For the purposes of commercial insurance, pharmacists are eligible pretty much everywhere. Uh, so, so the next step after level one of being explicitly ineligible would be level two, and that would be where pharmacists are eligible for reimbursement. However, there is no requirement for any plan to actually reimburse pharmacists. So this is most frequently what we see if we see a state law that simply uh, amends the definition of a pharmacist to say a pharmacist is a healthcare provider. That clarifies for the purposes of commercial insurance plans that they may treat pharmacists as healthcare providers. They may reimburse pharmacists for anything within their, their scope of practice, but they don't necessarily have to. So the majority of states are at this level where pharmacists are formally defined as healthcare providers. However, there is no requirement or mandate upon health insurance plans to actually cover pharmacist provided services. So the next step after simply defining pharmacists as eligible is uh, states can pass laws that say pharmacists are eligible healthcare providers and also plans must reimburse pharmacists for all covered services within their scope of practice. So we've seen a, a number of states pass these types of laws in recent years to get more health plans to, to recognize pharmacists as providers. Beyond saying that health plans must recognize pharmacists as providers, that they must reimburse pharmacists for covered services within the scope of practices, 
states can take it one step further by saying those health plans also need to reimburse pharmacists at rates equal to other providers, right? So if there is a service that is legally permissible for a physician assistants, uh, for an advanced practice nurse, and for a pharmacist to any of them could perform the service. So if any of them could perform the service, does the health insurance plan have to allow any of them to perform the service, or can they say it's only covered by certain providers? Further, if they are provided, if they are required to cover all these services, do they have to pay all of those different providers equally? And do they have to pay pharmacists at rates equal to other providers? And, and then finally, level five or the highest level of pharmacist reimbursement, right, would be that plans must reimburse pharmacists for anything that's within the scope of practice. They must reimburse pharmacists at rates equal to or greater than other non-pharmacist practitioners. And also, they have to include pharmacists in their provider networks. So simply saying that, that health insurance plans must cover pharmacist-provided services don't necessarily, doesn't necessarily uh, always fix the issue of pharmacist reimbursement instantly because you still have the issue of uh, plans may or may not have to reimburse pharmacists equally. So if they reimburse the pharmacist, you know, one penny for one service that they reimbursed a dollar to a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, you know, while pharmacists are legally permitted to allow the to, to deliver the service uh, and they would receive reimbursement for the service, in practice, they're not really going to deliver that service very often because they're not being compensated uh, appropriately by the plan. So if we take the additional step of saying they have to be uh, compensated equally, we can still run sometimes run into various roadblocks uh, because health insurance plans, specifically commercial insurance plans, uh, are under no requirement uh, to include pharmacists as in-network providers. They're allowed to have restricted provider networks. They're allowed to have, you know, to, to designate some providers as out-of-network providers. So again, if a plan theoretically makes no effort to include any pharmacists in their provider networks, they can still be compliant with the law by saying that we do reimburse pharmacists and we do reimburse them at equal rates, but however, we only consider them out-of-network providers. So from the patient's perspective, they would have to pay more money. They would have to pay out-of-network cost sharing uh, in order to receive these, these uh, services from a pharmacist. So in order for a pharmacist to really be viable as a healthcare provider, uh, they have to be in-network, they have to be reimbursed uh, at competitive rates, uh, and insurance plans uh, have to have the mandate uh, that they cover any service within the scope of practice. So just like we were talking about for these independent prescribing laws, you know, uh, a lot of states can and have passed laws that say insurance plans have to cover specific pharmacist services. So insurance plans have to pay pharmacists for giving a flu shot. Uh, they have to pay pharmacists for uh, evaluating uh, and assessing people for uh, HIV prevention drugs, and they have to cover those drugs once they're prescribed. Uh, but they don't necessarily have to cover everything within the scope of practice. So you, you could write the law saying uh, pharmacists must be reimbursed for XYZ services, or you can write the law saying pharmacists must be reimbursed for any service within their scope of practice. Uh, obviously, we prefer the latter as a means of policy because that means every time we expand scope of practice, now all of those new services that we've just uh, allowed pharmacists to provide, they now automatically get reimbursement for because the law already says pharmacists can be reimbursed for anything that is within their scope of practice. Can we talk a little bit more about what states are doing to advance pharmacist recognition and reimbursement for commercial plans specifically? Yes. Yeah, so, so as I just mentioned, right, uh, every state 
makes it clear that pharmacists are eligible to be reimbursed uh, by commercial insurance plans for provider services. There are, by our count, 11 states that have a requirement that these uh, that are at level three, uh, meaning they have the requirement that uh, commercial health insurance plans cover any service that is within a pharmacist's scope of practice if that service would otherwise have been covered uh, if delivered by a non-pharmacist practitioner. Uh, of those 11 states that require coverage for anything within a pharmacist's scope of practice, seven of those states uh, have pay parity requirements, meaning they also mandate the insurance plan uh, pay pharmacists for their services uh, at rates equal to other non-physician practitioners. So this is a somewhat recent development in general. Uh, actually, Washington state was the very first state to mandate uh, health insurance plans uh, cover any service within a pharmacist scope or practice. Uh, and that only happened in 2015. So Washington state was the first state to, to mandate commercial plans cover uh, pharmacist services in 2015. Uh, they were followed by Tennessee in 2017. Uh, and those were also the first two states, Washington and Tennessee, uh, both in 2017, to, to mandate the equal pay requirement. Uh, we've seen a few more states in recent years, uh, but we added four states uh, to get up to 11 in 2021. Uh, so the, the states that we added this year were Kentucky, uh, Illinois, New Hampshire, and Oklahoma. Uh, Kentucky is notable because Kentucky uh, did also implement the equal pay requirement. Uh, the other three states, Illinois, New Hampshire, and Oklahoma, uh, passed laws saying that for commercial insurance plans, uh, commercial insurance plans must recognize pharmacists as healthcare providers, and they must cover anything in the scope of practice, but they don't necessarily have, uh, have to pay pharmacists the, the same rates uh, as non-pharmacist practitioners. New Hampshire is also notable because they, they passed a bill that recognized pharmacists as providers across all insurance plans, but specifically for the purposes of Medicaid plans, uh, the New Hampshire bill requires all Medicaid plans to cover any eligible service uh, by any pharmacist, and it requires all Medicaid plans to consider pharmacists as in-network providers. Kyle, can you give a little bit more detail on that in Medicaid plans like New Hampshire's? Yeah, so, so as we mentioned, we were talking about commercial plans. A reality of commercial health insurance plans is that they're allowed to have preferred provider networks, meaning they can say some providers are in network and some providers are out of network. That's just how commercial health insurance plans work. A benefit of seeking pharmacist provider status through Medicaid programs is that the state has the additional flexibility and the additional leeway, like the federal government does in the Medicare program, to not only uh, say that these services are covered, but also that any pharmacist who is willing to enroll with the Medicaid program is automatically considered an in-network provider, which is an extra step you can take with Medicaid that you can't necessarily take with commercial insurance plans. And we actually saw two states in 2021 take this step. Uh, and those two states were New Hampshire, like I just mentioned, and also Colorado. So New Hampshire and Colorado passed bills, both in 2021, that say uh, a pharmacist may provide any service within their scope of practice to any eligible Medicaid enrollee. Uh, all Medicaid plans must enroll pharmacists as in-network providers, and they must reimburse pharmacists for those services. So that is a really exciting development in Colorado and New Hampshire is that they have passed true more or less provider status laws for their Medicaid programs. So that means that for the purposes of Medicaid enrollees in New Hampshire and Colorado, they may get services from a pharmacist and any pharmacist may enroll as an in-network provider 
uh, and any pharmacist may be reimbursed for any eligible covered service within the scope of practice. So the, these have really been uh, monumental steps forward for these two states. Uh, and we look forward to seeing more states adopt models like this in their Medicaid program. Thank you so much for going over Medicaid, commercial and Medicare. So do you have any last thoughts on uh, advocacy and state efforts that you want to close us out with? Yeah, so you know, I just I hope that today's conversation was a, a good sort of background and, and primer uh, to, to give our members a little bit of information, both about you know laws that are passed this year in 2021, uh, and also sort of a better perspective on what the push for provider status has meant historically and will continue to mean uh, year over year as we continue to push this. So you know. I, it's great to draw attention to these laws. We've accomplished so much great stuff in 2021. I think we'll continue to accomplish great things in 2021. Um, but, you know, the real key takeaway, I think, of this podcast that we're hoping everybody uh, goes home with is that, you know, provider status is going to be an ongoing battle. Um, we're going to continue to try to get provider status in the Medicare program and with Congress, uh, but there will always be state components of this, and it's always going to be important every year to continue to advocate at the state level uh, to expand scope of practice and to expand recognition for insurance plans that are regulated by the state instead of by the federal government. Yeah, you're right, Kyle. Well, thanks so much for the work you and your team are doing, and it really goes to show how important advocacy is at all these different levels. So that's all the time we have for today. I just want to thank you again, Kyle, for joining us to discuss these state provider status updates. We want to be sure that your voice is heard and all of our members' voices. So visit ashp.org to learn more about key issues, grassroots efforts, and ways that you can get involved in ASHP advocacy efforts. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.